You are listening to Healing Arts with Dr. Shelley Care. Visit me online at www.pastlifelady.com. Connect with me on YouTube at Past Life Lady or on my Facebook fan page at Past Life Lady. The Healing Arts Program is not intended as a substitute for consultation with a licensed medical or mental health professional. The listener should regularly consult a physician or mental health professional in matters relating to his or her health, and particularly with respect to any symptoms that may require diagnosis or medical attention. This program provides content related to educational, medical, and psychological topics. As such, listening to the program implies your acceptance of this disclaimer. guess what? I've got a new book coming out. It's called The Goddess Discovered, Exploring the Divine Feminine Around the World. And it is coming out on December 8th from Llewellyn Worldwide. This book has over 500 deities in it. Part one of the book will take you into the ancient world where you will learn about ancient religions that you may have practiced during your past lives and you'll explore goddesses from the ancient Celts, the Norse, the Egyptians, the Greeks and Romans, and more. And then in part two, we will explore living religions, current modern religions, and the deities worshipped by people during our own modern times. In part three, you'll have a chance to take some past life regressions and even genealogical regressions to connect with the places where your ancestors may have worshipped these deities in the past. Pre-order The Goddess Discovered and you'll receive a free gift, a guided journey from me through my healing arts platform. I hope that this one will be a book that you will have on your shelf for years to come. And I cannot thank you enough for your support of this book. I'll have lots of events coming up. But meanwhile, you can pre-order The Goddess Discovered. And I thank you so much for your support. Namaste. Welcome to Healing Arts. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Care. Hey, dear one, I just wanted to beam in before we start the program today to tell you that we've got Paul Perry on the show. I was so excited to get to meet him. I've never met him before. He is the co-author with Dr. Raymond Moody of several best-selling books. And so stay tuned next week on Healing Arts when I have a very in-depth discussion with Dr. Raymond Moody about this book. But today we're going to hear from Paul and he's had a really interesting journey. So I think you're going to enjoy this one. So let's settle in and let's get started. (laughs) 
Hey, dear ones, welcome to another episode of Healing Arts. So I am so excited today. We have a first time guest. The phenomenal Paul Perry is with me. You may know Paul because he has written several books with one of my favorite human beings on planet Earth, my friend, Dr. Raymond Moody. They have a new book that is out that um, we're pre-recording this interview. So actually, I'm one of the first people who's getting a sneak peek of this phenomenal new book that you need to check out. It is called Proof of Life After Life, Seven Reasons to Believe in the Afterlife. Paul, welcome to Healing Arts. It's amazing to meet you. I'm a big hey, fan of your work. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so this is amazing. I'm a very nosy person. <laughs> and good. Good I was to be thinking, nosy. yes, I was thinking about, you know, I really want to hear you tell the story about how you and Raymond met and you talk about it in the book. So share yeah. about yeah. when you first met Raymond and how you got into this amazing partnership that the two of you have developed. Yeah. Well, it was 1987. We were living in New York. And uh, I was editing executive editor of a magazine called American Health Magazine, which at the time was uh, the most successful startup of the 80s. Uh, the rest of the tragic tra tragic story is that we sold it to Reader's Digest and it went out of business. So uh, not our fault. Anyway. And one day I got a call from my book agent, uh, Nat Sobel. And Nat says, you know, I've got a guy here who. Uh, can't pull the trigger on a book. He can't finish this book. And I said, well, who's that? And he said, it's Dr. Raymond Moody. Do you know who he is? I said, no, I don't know who he is at all. Well, he's, he named and defined uh, the whole field of near-death studies and near-death experiences. Do you, are you familiar with those? And I said, no, I'm not. And that kind of got edgy and said, don't you ever watch Oprah? <laughs> I said, oh, I guess I better start. And he says, well, you know, you, you're the editor of a large uh, uh, health magazine. And you really need to know this information. You need to know what a near-death experience is. So why don't you go down? He lives in, in Georgia at the time. Why don't you go down and uh, uh, talk to him about writing, about writing this book called The Light Beyond? And that's what I did. I mean, uh, Raymond met me at the airport. He was totally different from what I thought he was going to be. You know, most doctors, particularly psychiatrists, are kind of know-it-alls and, and uh, uh, they polish their shoes. I'll put it that way. And, and Raymond was just a very different kind of guy. I mean, he, I like to ask questions and he likes to answer them. So... We put together the book, uh, The Light Beyond. And when we finished that book, you know, I was looking for holes in it. And I said, you know, there's nothing in this book about children who have near-death experiences. <clears throat> and he said, well, that's true. He said, there's not much research being done. There's just one guy that I know of who's started some research, and that's uh, Melvin Morse, a pediatrician in Seattle. And he introduced me to Melvin. and I went to Seattle and we ended up producing uh, Closer to the Light, which was a hugely successful book, but it was rejected. We sent it to 20 publishers. It was rejected by 19 of them. And then the 20th one was uh, uh, Diane Reverend, who was the editor at uh, HarperCollins. 
And I was talking to her, I'm on the phone with her and I'm looking at 19 rejection letters, literally. Some of the rejection letters were absurd. One said that people don't care this much about their children. Uh, someone else said, you made a typo on page two, we won't accept this. Uh, and others, this is more like a magazine article, it's not like a book. And Diane Reverend is saying, this book's gonna be a bestseller. You know, if you handle it right, it's gonna be huge because, because people care a lot about their children. And so we, uh, Melvin and I wrote that book and it was a huge bestseller. And, uh, but it, it's always based, when I go to write a new book, it's always based on questions that I had from the last book. So when I looked at the book Closer to the Light and looked for a, a, a gap, in knowledge, I said, well, what happens to people if they have a near-death experience with their children? Does the effect of it stay with them their entire life? And he said, I don't really know. You know, so we did a study, we did a research uh, called the Seattle study, and then another one, the transformational study. And the next book we wrote was Transformed by the Light. And that was a book that dealt with uh, uh, how near-death experiences affect people and how long that effect last, lasts. And we looked at all kinds of aspects of it. It was really a pretty amazing uh, uh, bunch of research. For example, uh, one thing we found out was that, that people who have near-death experiences have four times as many uh, verifiable psychic experiences as, as people who don't have them. And a verifiable psychic experience would be uh, that you have a dream, a precognitive dream that somebody's going to die. That's one example. Or if you have a, a dream that you're going to be in a car wreck the next day, you'll be in a, in a car with someone who has a car wreck and you, and you tell your spouse, I'm not going to ride with this guy today because I dreamed we had a car wreck last night. And then you do have a car wreck. He does have a car wreck. That would be a, a precognitive experience. And that would be a verifiable psychic experience. So people who have near-death experiences have like four times as many of verifiable experiences as people who don't have a near-death experience. So this all indicated a lot of things, of course. And uh, that book was hugely successful. And then we just went on from there. You know, Melvin wanted to do a book on... Uh, the brain and where God lives. So we did a book called Where God Lives and studied where in the brain, what part of the brain activates during a near-death experience. And it's just gone on and on. So over the course of the years, I've written 16 books on uh, near-death experiences and near-death studies. Wow. And that's how this one came about. Uh, you you did Raymond's book Reunions, correct? Yes, I did. I'm I'm familiar with that because you mentioned meeting Raymond in Georgia. So you went out to the beautiful property with the mill on it, correct? Oh, that was in that's in Alabama. That's in Alabama, one of the most beautiful places I've been. I loved it. Yeah, I went there. He was teaching. Um, I took his Psychomantion certification program, oh, so, okay. which is the subject of reunion. So tell us about reunions and what that is about, because I know you can do it better than I did. You wrote the book. Boy, well, Raymond is a, a 
he's a scholar. I mean, he's a medical doctor, but he's also a PhD in philosophy. And, and his primary focus is, is the Greeks. You know, he, he knows everything about Greek philosophy and, and the culture that it came out of. And one thing he started to study was uh, the way the Greeks would keep in touch with the dead. And the way they did it was through uh, a, something called, well, it's called scrying now. But at the time it was it was uh, crystal gazing or just gazing because it wasn't always crystals that they were looking into. And what he found that they was that they had all over the country of Greece, they have psychomantiums from the days from the Greek days, which are essentially big caves with little warrens in them where people would sleep and uh, and they would kind of be in the dark for weeks sometimes uh they'd be in the dark they would they would be alone they would eat they would desensitize their bodies is what would happen and at the end of that after several weeks of, of kind of desensitization they would then go into a big room and this room had uh a copper it was he somehow figured out it was copper kind of a copper cauldron of hot water and they would pour olive oil on top of the water and you would get a perfect uh, surface to stare into and get a reflection. And people who would do that, would do, they would position it in such a way that they didn't see themselves in the reflection, that they only saw really a clear depth. And they would, uh, if they were trying to find, if they were trying to commune with uh, a person who had died, they would think about that person who had died and they would have uh, apparitional experiences that the person who had died would either show up physically or they would show up mentally. They could talk to them, you know, mentally. Sometimes people would, would leave the, uh, the water and literally come out and, and they would be able to communicate with their, with their loved one that way. He decided to simplify it for the for the 20th century and and use mirrors. So he had a mirror chamber and that was called the psychomantium. And it's a chamber that uh, if, if I don't know if you can use videos, but I'll send you a video of it. Uh, his current one. And it's a room that in, in the case, the current one is round. And you sit kind of in the middle of it. And you look into this clear depth of mirrors and people see departed loved ones. Now it sounds like it's, it's just a, a phantasm, you know, that maybe it's a waking dream or something, but very often people report that loved one coming out of the glass, coming out of the mirror and communicating with them. And uh, more recently, uh, I mean, we, we have, we have had, a lot of people who say that that their loved one came out of the mirror and spoke to them, quite a few of those. Recently, we had somebody who photographed one. And uh, how that happened was a woman came to see Raymond from Argentina, very wealthy woman. She had a private plane. She flew into uh, uh, where, where he lived then in Anniston, Alabama. And 
she really wasn't ready to go through the experience, but she insisted on doing it anyway because she's a rich woman. Okay. And she went into the, the psychomantium and nothing happened. She did everything she needed to do, but nothing happened. And so she said, I'm going to come back tomorrow. But that afternoon, this happened at three in the afternoon, she went back to the hotel where she was staying with her, her sister who was there. And they were both talking about the person that she wanted to see, which was her daughter who had died of cancer like 90 days earlier. And uh, uh, she was talking to her sister in this room. And all of a sudden, these three balls appeared. And they were floating around the room. And luckily, her sister took three photographs of them. And they're floating around the room, kind of not bouncing off each other, but they're crossing through. And one of them came to the woman, and she said her, her daughter was in this orb. And she had a long conversation with her. And, and that was her psychomantium experience. I've always wanted Raymond to film what's going on in the psychomantium, but he won't do it because he feels like it's a violation of their privacy. But he also never asks them if they can do it, if he can do it. So what I would like to do with him, and we'll probably do it eventually, is is go back, redo a lot of cases, and and photograph what goes on, film what goes on inside. It's just a really extraordinary thing. Uh, when he first talked about it, I just thought it was the goofiest thing I'd ever heard. And and I honestly wanted nothing to do with it. And then I did it myself and I uh, came into contact with my father. And and then I spoke to other people who he was having people come in while I was there. And they were having the same thing happen. You know, they'd come into contact with the uh, generally it was a loved one that they want to to make contact with. Some people will not see anything in the psychomantium, but later on, like the woman from Argentina, they have an experience. Some of those experiences have involved uh, people who see their, their uh, dead relatives after they've, they've just gone to bed, turn the lights out, and this person will come into the room. And, and some of those have been really very quite detailed. Uh, even to the point where they've, where we've had a few people who say that they get out of bed and they hug the person and they're solid. Wow. So, I think it's a there. It's a really room for a lot more research on that one. And that's one of the things that we deal with in in the book. Proof is uh, the psychomantium. You know, we talk about that Argentinian woman, and and uh, I don't think we included a photograph of her, but it's up on my website. And it will be on his as well. So that's that's that. I mean, you know, 16 books later. I've written six with Raymond and then uh, four with Melvin Morris, uh, one with Rajiv Party called Dying to Wake Up, two with Daniel Brinkley. And uh, I think that's it. I don't know if that's 16 or not. Wow. Daniel was interesting because... Uh, I was at a conference in Seattle with Melvin and Raymond and a woman came up to us afterwards and she said, I can't wait to die. Uh, 
I know. And then that just started happening a lot, you know. And and I said, well, yeah, that's really not the point of this. Uh, and it concerned me. So what I wanted to do was was do a book on one person who had had a very powerful near death experience, and uh, uh, look at the effects of it on them, the good and the bad. So I started looking for the right person. And uh, uh, Raymond introduced me to Daniel, and and I had never met Daniel before. I spent a lot of time with Raymond at this time, at this point, and I was there visiting him. And I told him what I was doing, and he gave me like three or four names. And he said, "You really need to talk to Daniel Brinkley." And like five minutes later, Daniel comes storming in the front door, uh, not knocking as usual, and. Uh, uh, I, he was, I was introduced to him at that point, and I was sold. I mean, he he did a lot of, he's kind of psychic. He was much more psychic then than he is now. But but he was, uh, you know, doing a lot of psychic things. And finally, I called Diane Reverend at HarperCollins and told her what was going on. And she flew down, and uh, she spent a couple of days there and and signed up the book right away. And so that was interesting because he's had a lot of good things happen and a lot of bad things as well. You know, so I think we got through, got the message through, but probably not. <laughs> There's still still people who say, I wish I was dying. But uh, yeah, you try, you can't always succeed. Danian is really interesting. He, um, for those who may not know Danian Brinkley, I can't imagine, but um, he had been struck by lightning several times, correct? Twice, but the one that uh, that got him was in oh, 1975, 76, something like that. And he was struck by lightning and he lives in Aiken, South Carolina. And he was struck by lightning on the phone. He was on the phone and he cardiac arrested for, I think, 26 minutes by the uh, medical records count. And uh, uh, was essentially dead. And then they they had him on a cart, ready to take him to the morgue. And someone noticed that the 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 sheet was moving <laughs> as he was breathing, and so they took him out and worked on him. Uh, it's quite a character. Yeah. Yeah, he is a bundle of energy. That's he sure. is at that. Yeah, hard to calm down too. Pretty amazing. I, it was hard to write with him because uh, you know I usually. In, in person with somebody so I, I went to his house I was going to spend like a week there and I couldn't get him to to settle down he's just so frenetic he was on the phone all the time he was having people drop by and on and on and and the and I realized at that point that the only time I could really get him to talk to me was on the phone so I just said mm -hmm. look I'm going to go home and I'll do this I'll do all my interviews on the phone and that worked out great and then, you know, we've gotten together since I made a documentary about him years ago. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's Daniel. So. It's so interesting. So you have, um, before we started this interview, you were telling me about some of your other books, one of which um, I know this audience is going to love. So you traveled around Egypt. Right. And you ended up doing a film and a book about... Yeah. 
the path of Jesus. And I cannot wait to hear more about this. Tell us about how you got into this and, and all of the things that came. And I think you've got a copy of the book there to show us. I want to hear I do. Yeah, here it is right here. I'll just show it to you. Oh, and my God. This was done by uh, nuns. Uh, wow. Nuns in a place called Dimyana. And the, oh, I've got the, an icon here somewhere of Dimyana. But, but Dimyana was a, a, a woman who, in the period of Diocletian, who was a, um, one of the Caesars or something for, uh, in Rome, he came to, to Egypt and he did not, he didn't like Christianity. So what he threatened her with was he was going to kill her and the 40 nuns who lived in Dimyana. And uh, uh, he did. He killed all of them because they wouldn't convert from Christianity. They wouldn't denounce it. And so these nuns are still there in this town called Dimiana. And it's a uh, kind of a, in, in Egypt, they have a lot of towns that are Christian towns or Muslim towns. Yeah, and then they have some that are mixed. But for the most part, they have a lot when you get out in the sticks uh, of ones that are just 100% Muslim or 100% Christian. So Dimyana is pretty much 100% Christian. And uh, they do paintings. They do beautiful icons. And so I asked them if they would do an icon for the cover of the book, and that's what they produced. Yeah. Wow, that but, is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, they're great. I had them do like 20 more. <laughs> I have a bunch of them around the house. But uh, how did you get into that that subject? Well, I went to Egypt in uh, the 90s, like I guess it was later in the 90s, to work on a documentary on the stone temples of the Nile. And, you know, so the idea was that we would go to Abu Simbel, which is on, on the border with Sudan. And uh, we would start there and just go up the Nile, filming all of these temples, these different temples. Like there's the Temple of Dendur that is in the Museum of Modern uh, History, Museum of Modern History, Museum, Metropolitan Museum in New York. That's there, but it had a twin temple. So the twin temple is still there and in Egypt. But we went, you know, all down the river. And uh, at one point, I was sitting on the boat. I, I was kind of jet lagged because we just arrived there from the U.S. And I was looking out across the desert and there's three guys on camels and they're wearing white robes. And it made me think of the three wise men. And then uh, I remembered from what little I know about the Bible that Jesus had left Israel and he had gone, he and his family had gone to Egypt to get away from King Herod. And uh, they were there for like, it's hard to tell, but I think it's five and a half to six years. And at the end of that, an angel appears to Joseph and tells him that uh, uh, King Herod has died and you can go back to Israel. And that was halfway through Egypt in a town that's now called a suit. And so at that point, they got on their boat and they went back to uh, they went back to Israel all they you just don't really anyway they went back to Israel on that boat there's only two verses in the Bible in Matthew that cover that trip so I found that to be kind of a you know six years it's a big gap so while I was there working on stone temples of the Nile I started 
asking people that we met all the way down the Nile, Muslim or Christian, uh, what do you know about Jesus? What kind of stories have survived after all these years? And they would all tell me stories, you know, that they stopped in this particular area, that he, that he performed miracles here, that he knocked down a temple in, in, uh, in the north and on and on. And uh, I went to the Pope, the Coptic Pope, Pope Shenouda, and I told him then that I wanted to write a book about Jesus in Egypt. And did he have any more information? Well, he gave me a map that they had put together. He and all the bishops, they had all they put this map, the Holy Family Trail. And he gave me the map of the Holy Family Trail. So I went back. Uh, actually, I went back to write this book about four weeks after 9-11. And, and I thought it was going to be trouble because it's, you know, it's a Muslim country. And uh, so I flew over there and uh, I was just welcomed by everybody, you know. And then I was watching the news and the news was a totally different story. <laughs> you know, the news was, you know, Americans were leaving Egypt. They felt that they were going to be persecuted. And it was just exactly the opposite. Uh and so I walked, well, I didn't walk the whole trail because it's a long trail, but I walked, cameled, drove the trail from the border with, with uh, Israel all through the, the top part of Egypt, through Cairo, which is only 400 years old, right, by the way, and, uh, and then down to a suit. And all the way down, I stopped at every place that, that, uh, that their gospels say he stopped, that the Holy Family stopped, and uh, ended up writing a book about it. And then I, the book came out. So the book came out like a year later, and uh, a producer from National Geographic was visiting, and he wanted me to do a, a documentary on uh, a ship that sank in Nova Scotia, and they had found it and found a lot of gold on it and everything. And he wanted me to go do a documentary about that. The book showed up that afternoon from the publisher, just newly published. And I gave it to him. And I said, you know, here's something for you know the hotel tonight if you get tired of TV. And he read the book in one shot and came back the next day and said, let's do the book and skip the, the shipwreck. And that's what we did. It was it was in a it was in. It was like in April, March or April. Uh, I don't remember the exact day. Well, it was in 2001. And March or April, and it was, I wanted to do it right away because, you know, you don't usually get an offer like that from anybody. So we got everything together and I got a crew together. And we got over there sometime in, uh, sometime in April, I believe. And it was extremely hot. Just extremely hot. So the Far, the further we would go into the trail, the hotter it got. And we actually got to places where it just shut off our cameras. It was so hot, it would just shut them off. And uh, and that was it. I mean, I went through that, that whole thing for a, a month. So I spent two months there writing the book and then came back and, and did the trail again in a month. And uh, it worked out really well. We did a premiere in Egypt at the Opera House. And we did a premiere for the president at the time, Mubarak. 
and his wife and Buchos Buchos Gali and uh, uh, who else was there? It was a bunch of interesting people. It was, you know, 1600 of his best friends. And we sat up in the uh, this hardened opera box with, with Mubarak and his wife and uh, watched this thing. And it was, it was great. We just had a great time. Wow. That is absolutely incredible. We'll have the links to that one for sure below. Yeah, then I went back. Well, this is another story if you want to continue it all the way through. I was approached by a, a doctor with the FDA, uh, a doctor named Kerry Malik. And uh, Malik was Egyptian. And he had, since 1968, he had been collecting videos and stories about visions and miracles that took place in Egypt. And many of them have been photographed. Uh, a lot of them had been filmed. And he had a lot of this information, all actually every major vision and miracle that had taken place, he was connected with it somehow. And uh, he said, I want you to go back and do a documentary for me on visions and miracles in Egypt. So we did that. We went back and, and uh, visited all these vision sites and they're absolutely amazing. You know, I mean, I would think after I saw some of them and, and, and did the film that someone at the New York Times should have just said, stop the presses. This is a great story. But rarely do you find stories about these miracles that take place. Uh, and, and there was one story, one or two stories in the, in the New York Times about it, about one in, in a place called, oh man, Sagazig, I think it was. And uh, and that was a really profound one where Mary appeared on top of this church and it was photographed. She appeared on top of the church. Some guys who were managing the uh, a parking lot next door thought it was someone trying to commit suicide because this person was standing on top of this dome. So they started yelling for her to, you know, don't jump. And then they realized they could see through her. And uh, and they reported it to uh, a lot of church officials and the police and everything. And she started appearing nightly for like a month. You know, and then after that, sporadically. So they had all kinds of opportunity to photograph her. And this Dr. Malik that I had uh, gone to Egypt with uh, had been there and seen her. And, and so, you know, we went back and we did a lot of footage and interviews, interviewed a lot of people about this. But it was a huge, it was huge. Thousands and thousands of people came from all over Europe and from uh, uh, North Africa, came to see this. And many times people would say, okay, this is a weird thing about visions. A lot of times you'll see like there'll be hundreds, there, in this case, thousands of people who were there and, and she would appear on the dome of this church and sometimes kind of come down from the dome. But many people didn't see that. And many people did at the same time. And, and one of the guys we talked to was a, a, a professor at American University, but he, was a, a, he taught religion. And he had gone to divinity school at Harvard. And he said, I would have a lot of friends come over from, he was German, a lot of friends would come over from Germany 
from the U.S. They'd be students of mine. Some were very devout. Some were atheists. And he said, very often, the atheists saw it more than the devout people. They would see her more than the devout people. Uh, wow. Yeah, I have no idea. But that happens a lot in, in visionary encounters, that some people don't see the vision. They don't see an apparition. And uh, uh, others do. And the people who do, you often wouldn't expect that they would. So that was happening a lot. And then finally, uh, the president um, of Egypt came to see it, President Nasser. This was happened in 68. President Nasser came to see it, and he went into the parking lot across the street and sat there all night, and he saw her. And, and so he admitted to Coptics that he saw her. And then, of course, it goes all over the place. It's in newspapers and everything. And, uh, and he donated this land to the Coptic church. And, and they built like the tallest, the tallest uh, tower of any church in, in Cairo. They wanted to make sure it was taller than the highest minaret. <laughs> so, uh, they did that. And, and I don't think people see her anymore there. But if you go to a suit, there's, all, there's also these flashing lights that come on. I was there and I photographed it and, and I brought it back and had it, uh, uh, the photo examined by uh, an, Apple an Apple laboratory, an Apple photographic laboratory. And uh, it, it's, it's pretty amazing. I'll send that to you too. It's a pretty okay. amaz amazing photo. Uh, and that was another one that's similar to the one in, in uh, uh, Zaytun. It was Zaytun, it was called, not Zagazig. And, that, this one was similar to the one in, in uh, uh, Zaytun because tens of thousands of people came to see this vision. And there were a whole bunch of people who were healed. So what was happening there were, were these flashing lights were coming down from the sky. And they, and it was, they were big, they were large lights. They were leaving, you know, streams. Uh, that you could see. They were, it was a big deal. It wasn't like just little, you know, UFO things. And so a lot of people said they were healed and they said they had different diseases. They had bone breaks. Uh, some people had cancer. Some women were infertile, uh, on and on. And they went to the church that's there in a suit, Church of St. Michael. And they told these priests what had happened that they were healed well the priests in in uh, egypt are different than priests other places uh they tend to be retired businessmen who have families you know they're allowed to be married and and they had very successful careers they leave and they become priests and these guys who manned this church were engineers and so they went into scientific mode they said okay you can come in here and say you were healed but you have to fill out a quest this questionnaire and you have to give us all of your medical records that show you were healed. And then we're going to gather a, a whole quorum of, of uh, Christian and Muslim doctors and we'll put them all together and they can assess each case. So they got a huge number of cases and, uh, and all of these doctors examined each one. Some of them were incredible. I mean, you'd have ones where people would have 
broken a bone and then sometimes bones don't heal and there's there's a there's a space between them and they had this one kid who had fractured his bone up here and it had a clear break on the x-rays and then like he was exposed to the light from these these visions which were essentially visions of light and his bone healed in in just a few days there were people at a cancer hospital that was across the street from it they claimed to be healed and and were uh, a lot of infertility issues uh, were taken care of and there were just other injuries and and diseases people had that they were they were cured from it and they were you know visionary cures once once more you read nothing about it in uh, you know papers outside of the Middle East but, but why do you is, think that is I don't think we're ready for it. Uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's like when you talk to people who, when you do a book on near-death experiences, uh, you talk to a lot of people who don't believe in them, but after they've had one, they believe in it. And I think that that is the problem, if it's indeed a problem with uh, Americans and Westerners, is that they need to have it happen to them first uh, before they believe it, you know, and so there is a great sense of disbelief in, in our culture. Middle Eastern culture is different. There's a lot of cultures that are very different when it relates to spirituality. And they don't see that the two often operate together. You know, they tend to, uh, a lot of people tend to disregard spirituality and miracle healings, which happen, you know, a little more often than people think. So that's my Yeah, sense. it's kind of like what you were saying earlier about the people who saw the, the Virgin Mary were the right. ones that were saying they were atheists. I mean, you know, they're the people, yeah. I guess, who needed to see that. And, and the now, believers don't need to see it. I mean, that's very interesting. And they might still be atheists, but they don't quite know what to make of it. Yes. You know. I mean, there was a, in, in the in the book, actually, you can talk to Raymond about this tomorrow, but in the book, we uh, talk about a really well-known philosopher in England. Can't remember his name. Uh, but this was back in the, when Raymond first wrote Life After Life. And this guy had, was a, he wrote, he was an atheist. He wrote proudly about being an atheist and, and denied anything anything else but atheism then he had a near-death experience and uh he he saw a light a really powerful light uh every everything else happened that you would expect to happen in near-death experience he, he had cardiac arrested so he really went deep raymond was on a radio show with him one time in england and he was in the uh the waiting room and this guy comes in and raymond knew him he knew he was going to be on, but he he knew all of his work, and and he said, "Well, how do you do? You think near death experiences are real?" And this guy, with great conviction, said, "They are absolutely real. Uh, I don't know what they mean, but they're absolutely real." And I think that is a you know we're like what do they say in Missouri? Uh, I'm from Missouri. Show me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> everything has to be shown here. Yeah. So, and yeah. yeah 
That is true. We do. I don't know why. I, I'm always one that has, I, I believe in a lot of things I can't see, but that is not very common. I don't think, I think you're right. Yeah. But it's changing a lot now. I mean, when I, when I first started writing with, with Raymond, I was working on the light beyond. I was also, no, I was working on closer to the light about children and near death experiences. And I was also working on a book on reversing heart disease with uh, a doctor, Herman Hellerstein in Cleveland. He was a big dog in that kind of research. And <clears throat> so we're standing in the hospital at our nurse's station. He's looking through his file folders. And he says, well, what else are you working on now besides this book? So I told him about near-death experiences and children and near-death experiences. And Herman says, you know, I've, I've resuscitated hundreds of people, and I've never heard one of these at all. And then he got called away. And all the nurses came over and they said, well, Herman's never heard of them because he never talks to his patients. <laughs> and uh, and then they started telling stories that they had heard. So I think there it takes a little coaxing. You know, and more and more now, because uh, people don't die the way they used to, they tend to die slower or they come back you know, with resuscitation techniques improving. Uh, doctors now are way more open to near-death experiences than doctors back then. You know, so it's it's all changing in there. And they're talking to their patients more and they're seeing more of these. So, yeah. I think what you're saying, though, really does speak to this new book that you and Raymond have because you're saying proof of near-death experiences i think that's what the western world wants and you oh, I think so right now especially. evidence you know that there's proof here that people can tap into yeah there always has been and you know what and but just people don't see it you know or no one really pulled it together and, and looked at it with someone with the the credibility of raymond for instance uh, he's the most credible voice in this field and yeah you know, there's a lot of people who would, who I'm sure come up to you and they'll say, why do you, why do you believe in life after death? And, and I started just before we decided to do this book, turning that question around and saying, well, why don't you believe in it? And, you know, what proof do you have that it doesn't happen? And, you know, I would start pulling, you know, proof out uh, that we had dealt with previously and now we're looking at it differently and and finding that yeah i think there's definitely some form of life after death what it is i don't have any idea you know but yeah. if, if we could take it over that bridge you know with this book i think we've done that i yeah you've definitely done that it's a fantastic book um, i think it's going to give everyone what they need to to get them over the edge if you want evidence and proof of things. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's what I want. I mean, I, I did the book uh, Evidence of the Afterlife with Jeff Long. And uh, that's a really terrific book. And that deals a lot with that deals a lot with near death experiences. You know, but I wanted to go further than that and get into shared death experiences, which is what this book deals uh, a lot with. So Tell us about the shared death experience and, and why that validates more than just an, an, a near-death experience that one person. Well, yeah, I mean, near-death experiences are 
proof to me that there's life after death, but I, I don't think they're uh, objective proof. So what I mean by that is, is that if, if I have a near-death experience, I have it. I, I can tell you about it, but I had it. And <clears throat> a shared death experience is when, let's say you're in a hospital with a loved one and they're dying, and they start to have uh, uh, the elements of a near-death experience. They start to leave their body. Uh, they go up a tunnel. They see dead relatives. People who are around them oftentimes go through the same experience. But it's not only just one person does it. Sometimes you'll have uh, a shared death experience where you'll have you know, five or six or 10 people in the room and they are essentially going through the same experience that the dying person is. So that makes it more objective instead of subjective. Because uh, once these people start to compare their stories with each other, say there's six people in the room with a dying person and they're all having what they think is something paranormal happening. Uh, they, when they start to compare what they've had, it's all the same thing. So that indicates that there is some kind of metaphysical communication between people that arises at the point of death. So that's a, an example of a shared death experience. But it can be, but it can be different than that. Uh, a precognitive experience, where you uh, wake up, for instance, and we have a number of people who uh, would wake up and have a dream, and the dream is that a family member or a friend is dying in a distant place. Uh, one of them was, is one of the couple of stories come from China, for instance, where people here are seeing their, uh, their loved ones dying in China. And they get up in the morning and they tell other people around them what they saw. They saw this person come in and stand at the end of the bed and tell them that they were, that they were dying. And, uh, and then you find out that they died at that time. You find out later when they died. That's a precognitive experience. And that indicates uh, that consciousness has left the body. So what you're dealing with here is consciousness, is, is, uh, and, and that a person's consciousness has left their body and communicated with someone else at a great distance. That's an example of a shared death experience. Yeah, and you're right. If everyone's having these visions and they're all the same, and yet, yeah, sure. um, you know, that does tend to lend the, lend the credibility because there's no way that could be happening yeah. any more than it could all be happening that ev that everybody or a lot of people are seeing the Virgin Mary come off of a church steeple. Right. And I think a lot of people have these experiences and they don't analyze what's happened or they ignore it. So when they read about it, That'll be different. They'll start to analyze it. Uh, I had one, uh, which is I, we put in the book. Um, I forget what year my mother died, but uh, let's say it was 95. Mm -hmm. And I had been working, well, five years before, I had uh, wanted to do a book with a guy named Vernon Nepi, who was the head of neuropharmacology at University of Washington. And he wanted to do a book on deja vu because he had done a lot of research on it uh, that led to uh, spirituality as well as uh, actual brain connections. 
and we couldn't sell the book. And, and so I didn't, I hadn't seen uh, Vernon for five years and, and same back, we had, had communicated it all. So the day my mother was dying, uh, I got a call from, from Vernon Nepi in, in that morning. And he said, uh, I was reading the paper this morning and a voice told me to call Paul Perry and I ignored it. So about a half an hour later, I was on the sports section and a, a voice said, call Paul Perry. So I, I'm calling you and I don't know why. And I said, well, you know, I told him my mother was dying. She had a kind of a rapid onset uh, Alzheimer's or dementia. Mm. And that was his area. I mean, he was, a, he was a neurologist. He is a neurologist. And he started telling me things that they that they had done with people who had this like rapid form of dementia. And maybe I should have them. He, he said, you should do electroshock therapy because it's not bad. You know, it, it would clear her mind. It'd be like, it's a reboot, you know, is what he called it. And he was suggesting different things for her. And while I'm talking to him, yeah, another phone call was coming in. This is before we had iPhones and things. And another, another call was coming in and it was the, care home and they said she had just died so i mean that's an example of a shared mm. death experience and an extreme one too because i hadn't talked to vernon in five years he's never on my mind and and you know this happened so that's a shared death experience wow i mean it just proves you know you can't disprove the fact that we are all connected yeah. And we are all tuned in to something that is beyond ourselves. Otherwise, how would that possibly happen? Sure. But, but you know, question is, what are we connected by? <laughs> what, what is all this stuff? Yeah, what is this cosmic web that we've yeah. woven? Which definitely is a cosmic web, for sure. Um, yeah. Wow. That so that's, what, so that's what the book deals with. And we, uh, we, we don't deal with it in a woo-woo kind of way because it takes care of itself in that aspect right uh, but we're just very straight very scientific we cite a lot of studies in it and make them readable to everybody so we'll see we'll see how it does well i think it's important i think it's it's going to do great in my prediction um i think people yeah. are ready for this as you've said i think people yeah. are more in more accepting now they but are. I still I think, think the idea of proof to some, you know, maybe that'll bring some over. Yeah. I mean, look, I think the pandemic had a lot to do with the changing attitudes in this. You know, there's there's all kinds of questions about why are we here? You know, where do we go when we die? And uh, there, there, people are definitely looking for those answers. Yeah, you bring up such a good point. I mean, I think just being forced to sit still was um, a real stretch for a lot of people. And then that that does cause that quiet part of the soul to start asking these deeper questions and wondering and sure. searching. Oh yeah, there's a lot of that going on, so. Yeah, and I think this is a good place to find answers. This is highly, oh, highly good. recommended. Well, thank you very much. So tell thank us you. your website, Paul. We're, and of course we're gonna have the links below, but tell us your website. And where we can find you. Mine is, is uh, paulperryproductions.com. So I have all of my books on and, and uh, a lot of other things. 
So it's paulperryproductions.com. Excellent. Okay. Links will be below. Friends, we've done it again. Paul, it's been a joy to meet you at long last. Congratulations on all your work. Thank, Thank you, you very for the much. research. Thank you for taking the journey and bringing all of this material to the forefront. Your books are fantastic. I've been a fan for years as are I know thousands of people out here watching this right now. So we thank you for that. And I think your book is a hit. Um, it's called Group of Life After Life. Pick it up now. You'll have the link below. Uh, wishing you continued success on your career and everything that you're doing in the future. Thank Keep you very it much. Appreciate it. Friends, we've done it again. Another episode of Healing Arts. So stay tuned for my interview with Dr. Raymond Moody when we'll continue our discussion about this fabulous book. And you need to check Paul out. His books are incredible. Um, we talked about reunions earlier. That's one of my all-time favorite books of all time. A special place in my heart on that one. And just all of the other great books that you've done. Thank you. I will see you, friends, on the next episode of Healing Arts. Take care. Hey friends, would you like to heal your ancestors to heal your life? Well, you can do just that with my book by the same name that will teach you my genealogical regression process so that you can send love and light to your ancestors. And by learning a few simple techniques, you will begin to feel the benefits of that healing resonating through yourself and your entire family, past, present, and future. Check out my book, Heal Your Ancestors to Heal Your Life, The Transformative Power of Genealogical Regression, today. Just go to pastlifelady.com, click on the book link, and check it out. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Healing Arts with Dr. Shelley Care. Visit me online at pastlifelady.com or on YouTube at Past Life Lady or connect with me on Facebook at Past Life Lady.